We want to help you learn how to pray and get into, you know, the prayer of the community. So that's why this, the prayer team has put together this prayer kiosk boxes area. Check that out and use it. Uh, make an effort to grow in prayer. Uh, let me pray and then we'll get into the message for today. God, thank you. Thank you that you listen to us. Thank you that we can pray. Thank you that we, we know when we pray, you listen. Your scripture is very clear. And there's something unique about corporate prayer, about praying all together and about taking on missions together. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be here present with us, that our hearts would be knitted together in love for you and for one another, and we would get to see you do wonderful things in and through us and apart from us as well, that we could celebrate what you're doing elsewhere. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, there's some kids in here. Today is the fifth Sunday of the month, so it's a family service. So kids, I am so glad that you're in here, each of you. And, and here's why. Because you kids are a valuable part of the church. You're not like, like B team members of the church that you're in the other room. You are A team. You are as important as anybody else. We love you, and God wants to use you. So today... I'm talking to you. So if you're coloring, that's awesome. Adults, you can color too. There's stuff in the back. Um, I like to doodle when I listen. But kids, listen. God might want to speak to you this morning through his word. Uh, starting off, we have a few kids. Um, we have one that's going to remain nameless who is fairly strong-willed. Um, she's our oldest, so you can put that together. We have three daughters. And when she was, I think she was about four years old, Grandpa was visiting town. We got in the truck. She sat down in the middle, and Grandpa was on this side, and I was driving, and she was trying to get her seatbelt. And you know how you work with strong-willed kids. You have a plan. Well, Grandpa leaned over and was going to help her. And she's like, no, I can do it. He said, no, you can't. I'm like, oh. Now we're going to be here forever until she figures it out or until we do it for her, and then there's a fight the rest of the day. Well, finally, she, you know, she's fumbling with it, and she clicks it and then just kind of looks at him like, ha. she doesn't get that from her mom. So I, I'm similar in, in the strong-willed, you know, you tell me I can't do something, watch me do it. And really, that kind of rises up when it comes to the church, when it comes to spirituality. I get a little bit, don't tell me what to do, when you start adding things to Scripture. You know, if there's, here's, here's an example for me. You have to dress, can't wear jeans in church. Anyway, that's one of those things where I've had people say, you know, you look good up here, but you're, you're wearing jeans. You're not supposed to wear jeans in church. And I'm like, well, show me in Scripture where it talks about wearing jeans. I, I, when we start adding things to Scripture, it muddies the real message. And so that's what we're talking a little bit about today is what are we supposed to do? Are there some things that we're told to do as a church? And what are, you know, there's some other things that maybe we can give or take, instead of creating legalistic religion around these traditions, there are some things that God has told us to do. Now, if you're not familiar with history, Christianity came out of Judaism. So God called the, the Israelites, his people, the Jews, and he set out religion for them. He gave them the law, and all that was a shadow leading up to Jesus, the predicted Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh, who would die on the cross and bring in a new covenant that would replace the old covenant. The old covenant was, was from Moses on Mount Sinai. They would sacrifice animals. They would, you know, the Ten Commandments, all that leading to Jesus where things changed a little bit. Now, here's something with Judaism. Old, that old religion was, was good. It was given by God. It was good. 
but it was very ceremonial. There were a lot of ordinances that God said. So uh, they, they worshiped in the temple. God told them how to build the temple. He said, I want you to build it just like this. They had a tabernacle. That, that, that's where God's presence would be. God told them how to build it. He said, I want you to do it like this, with the cherubim, with the wings. If you've seen uh, uh, Indiana Jones, it looked kind of like that, the first one. God told them. They didn't get creative license to go, I think I'm going to put a swirl here. God told them how to do it. The priests had to wear certain clothes that God told them what to wear. They had to use certain utensils that were blessed. The incense that they used was a, a certain recipe that God told them. I mean, a lot of these, they had feasts that they would observe throughout the year that they were supposed to do. As they walked to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts, they would sing certain songs on the way. So it was very ceremonial or ordinances that God said, go do this. Now that changed a great deal when Jesus died on the cross and rose again and brought in the new covenant. True biblical Christianity isn't a ceremonial religion. We're not a religion of a lot of ordinances where God has said, we have a lot of freedom, which is kind of cool because it's really not about the outward activities and, and all these things that you do. It's about the heart. And we talk about that a lot here, that, that Jesus said eternal life is that you know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Eternal life isn't that you do all these things and you're very spiritual and religious. You know, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment isn't obey all these things. And so God wants our heart, but there are two things, two things that God has given us. You can call them sacraments or ordinances, or I like the word ceremonies. He's given us two ceremonies that he's actually told us to do, and, and they are not used to bestow God's grace. You know, as you do them, it's not like you get more spiritual by doing them, but it's a response that we do in obedience, in love, that there are two things that we do, and they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I know some of us in here have a, a Catholic background or come out of families, you know, Catholicism, where they would say there are seven sacraments, um, and, and that's their tradition. That's not scriptural. Uh, they've created that. And in their understanding, these sacraments actually bestow God's grace. Truly, as you look at scripture, these sacraments or these ordinances don't bestow God's grace, but there is something unique about them. There's something unique about baptism and the Lord's Supper, connection with God. I think God is uniquely present, but it's not as if we have to do them or we're not saved or we don't get God's grace. So we're going to understand these Colossians. Turn to Colossians, please. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. There's a Bible underneath. If you need it, uh, feel free to use the table of contents and look up Colossians, C-O-L-O-S-S. And find Colossians chapter 2. And I think the, the best, uh, at least that comes to my mind, the best example of, of what these ceremonies represent would be kind of like a wedding and an anniversary. So when you get married, oftentimes it's a big celebration. You know, there's a lot of money spent by somebody on this big celebration where everybody comes and they watch this couple commit their lives to one another. And really, ideally, how many times do you do a wedding ceremony? One time. I mean, we live in a day and age where, where things are happening, but ideally you commit one time to somebody, and that's the wedding ceremony, but then you have to do this other thing like once a year from then on, the anniversary, and don't forget that one. 
But the anniversary is once a year, you remember the commitment you made. You remember what you did, and you kind of remind each other, I love you. You know, I tried that early on in my marriage. You know, I told you I love you when we got married. If anything changes, I'll let you know. Um, it doesn't work very well. Uh, husbands, they need to hear it every day. Women have short-term memory loss when it comes to that. They need to hear it often. And that's not a bad thing, but that's just the way God made us. They need to hear all the time, I love you, you're beautiful. I, I, if I could go back in time, I would do it again. And, and that's what anniversaries are for. Getting cheesy, sappy cards and whatever it is to remember. Well, that's kind of like the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is when we remember our baptism. We remember what Jesus did and the new covenant in him that we now get to celebrate and remember and live by. So, turn to Colossians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Two verse 11. Let me read these. In him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power, powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there's, there's a few things in this, but what do you notice as you read through? What is kind of the picture given in these verses? Of death, burial, and resurrection. That's the picture. But he's making a, a comparison with the Jewish re religion of circumcision. Now, circumcision, I'm not going to get into the details, uh, but circumcision was something that happened when God made his first covenant with Abraham. When he called Abraham and he said, I choose you and your descendants to be my people. Come, follow me, uh, you know, start going. You're going to go to a, a town, uh, not a town, but a place I'm going to tell you. You're going to take over this whole place, be a great nation, and from you is going to come the Messiah. Uh, I'm going to bless the whole world because of you. I mean, this was the, the first covenant God made with Abraham. If you read in Genesis, it's kind of cool how he did it. But part of the, the sign of that first covenant was circumcision. So all the men, all the males were circumcised. When God called them, they were circumcised. And there was times where others would convert to Judaism. And one of the first things that they did was they were circumcised. Circumcision was a symbol of that first covenant between God and his people. Circumcision was a symbol that they belonged to him. A, a change of we're, we're following this God or we're following ourselves. Now we're following you. And they would be circumcised to show that. Now it's no longer circumcision. It's baptism. Now under the new covenant, baptism has kind of the same purpose as circumcision did. The, the purpose is Okay, now I'm surrendering to Jesus as Lord. There's a change taking place here. I'm dying to my old self. That's the picture of the flesh in circumcision. You, you cut off a piece of the flesh in baptism, in salvation. Something is happening where our flesh, and when the Bible talks about our flesh, it's definitely our bodies, but it's also the part of us that is against God. 
The part of us that wants to sin, kids, here, here's this for you. Do you guys have a tendency to want to do what's wrong sometimes? Right. Oh, thank you for the raise of hands, some of you. Good. I do too. Hey, listen, I do too. Sometimes I have a tendency to want to go away from God. That's my flesh. But when we're saved, something happens to our flesh. It loses its power. And so we put off the flesh and we take on this new spiritual nature. And that's what we're seeing in baptism. So look back at these verses. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. What happened to Jesus after he died on the cross? Do you guys remember? He was buried. He was put into a tomb. But then what happened three days later that we celebrated Easter? He rose from the dead. This, this is the picture we do in baptism, that we have died to our old self, died in Christ. We say this when we baptize. We say you have died to Christ, buried with him. That's why we dunk you all the way under the water, all the way over your face. We hold you there for a minute or so, uh, some longer than others, depending on your past. You know, buried with Christ, not really, not really. And then raised to walk in newness of life. It's this symbol of a change that you, uh, you, you go in one thing, you're done, and then you come out another, but it's a symbol because we're saved by faith in Jesus, not by being dunked, but it's a symbol of what happened to us when we surrendered to Jesus. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant we have with God through Jesus. Again, this picture of death, burial, and resurrection of us in concert with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. This is really, really cool. Okay, listen, kids, I want your eyeballs real quick because kids in here. When you surrender to Jesus, when you say, here's how you get saved. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. You believe he rose from the dead, and when he died, all your sins he took on so that he could forgive you. And then he rose, you believe that, and then you say, not only do I believe it, but Jesus, I'm going to let you be in charge of my life. I'm going to follow you. Something happens. You don't just like get a ticket to get into heaven. It's not like, you know, you pray this prayer, you know, the Lord's prayer, and then, ba-ching, you get this ticket, and you put it in your pocket, and you save it until you die. Then when you get to heaven, you're like, no, I got my ticket. No, no, something even better happens. God changes you. He does something to your heart. Your heart was hard against God and it was soft or it wanted sinful things. And God like reaches in and he takes that heart out and he goes, and he takes a new one and he puts it in that actually beats. The other one wasn't beating. It was like, uh. The new one starts to beat and you start to want what God wants. It's really cool. You start to love what God loves and that's progressive. And you start to hate what he hates. And with that, you get true joy true peace, true love, the things you can't experience. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He wants to give you great things, not a bunch of rules and boring church stuff. He wants to give you an awesome life. And by the way, in that awesome life, church is actually pretty cool, I, I think. Um, but he gives you this new heart. That's what is symbolized here in this new covenant, this change. And so you're buried. The uh, technical term, the theological term is called regeneration meaning you go from being dead spiritually to alive. Regeneration. Here's maybe the best picture, and it's probably the worst picture, but I'm going to share it anyway. You guys familiar with Frankenstein's monster? Remember Frankenstein's monster? He's all these like dead body parts sewed together. 
that's us spiritually before we know Jesus. All these dead body parts sewn together, and then you know, lightning bolt hits it or whatever it is, and it and the monster comes alive, and all of a sudden it can walk around, and you know, that's regeneration, going from dead to alive. That's what happens to us spiritually. We go from dead to alive, and it's symbolized in baptism. Again, Baptism does not bestow God's grace, but it's a symbol of what he's already done. So do you have to be baptized to be saved? You don't. You don't. The thief on the cross next to Jesus, he didn't get a chance to get baptized. You know, while they were dying, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't go, hey, can you guys pull him down real quick and baptize him and put him back up here? No, he was saved right there. But... We're also told to be baptized. Jesus was baptized when he began. Peter, when he gave his first sermon and thousands were saved, and they said, oh, no, what must we do? He said, repent. That means turn from your sin, follow God. Repent and be baptized. There was an Ethiopian, a guy who was traveling in a carriage, and this guy named Philip came walking along because God told him to, and he heard him in there reading his Bible, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And, and Philip leans in and he goes, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no idea. He said, you want to come explain it? So he climbs up in the wagon, and he's reading it, and he explains, oh, that's talking about Jesus. Jesus died a few weeks ago, and he rose from the dead, and you can be saved in him. Philip believed right there. So right there in, in this wagon, he believes. He places his faith in Jesus. And he, they're going along, and he's like, hey, there's a puddle over there. Can I get baptized right now? Philip's like, yeah, pull over. I, I mean, that's what they did. Right then, they went and get baptized. A Roman centurion believed, and all his household believed, and immediately they were baptized. So we're told to do it. So it doesn't save you, but if you've been saved and you haven't been baptized, there's an issue. Maybe it's you didn't know you were supposed to, but I've also come across this with people. Yeah, I believe, but kind of that strong-willed thing, don't tell me what to do. I don't have to do that. Like, ooh, there's an obedience thing. There's a submission to Jesus thing here, when you've surrendered to him, you're saying, you're Lord, I surrender. He says, the first thing I'd like you to do is get baptized. And if we go, I surrender to you, go get baptized. No, thanks. We need to check our heart a little bit on there because we are told to do it. And it's a great celebration. I mean, that's why this Easter we're having a baptism, several, quite a few actually, here in this room. We use this, this trough over here. We're going to fill it with water. We'll warm it up. But it's a celebration because we're celebrating new life, and it's something we do corporately. It's, it's a picture of, again, baptized, being changed, but then also brought into the body of Christ. So the word baptism in the Greek is actually baptizo, and it means to dunk. Uh, and really, the way it was used was something would, would dunk and come out different. So in fact, there was, from the first century, a recipe uh, to make a pickle found. And the way they said it was you take the cucumber and you baptize it in the solution and the cucumber goes in and it comes out what? A pickle. It comes out something different. Or the, the picture is a piece, piece of fabric and it's white and then you baptize it. You dunk it into a dye and you pull it out and it's red or blue but it, it changes. That's the picture in baptism. But because it doesn't bestow grace, because it's after a decision to follow Jesus, we don't baptize infants. You know, sometimes, you know, we hear that or, or talk to others, you know, babies getting baptized. The Catholic Church does do that. They baptize infants, and the reason they do it is they think it bestows grace. So they think they take this two-week-old, they sprinkle water on it, that baby's now saved. 
The Bible doesn't teach that. And that can be actually a very damaging belief because then this kid can grow up in life and be horrible, never even want to follow Jesus. But everybody's like, well, it's fine because they were sprinkled when they were a baby. They're going to heaven. It's not what the Bible teaches. So instead of baptizing babies, what we do is we do uh, commitment or dedication. We do baby dedications. Uh, And that's really more for the parents and for the church than it is for the kid. Uh, But that's where you come up with your baby. We ask some questions uh, of the parents and are you committing to, you know, raise this kid in the church and and scripturally in God's way? Parents say yes. Then we ask the body, are you willing to come alongside this family? You know, hopefully you say yes. And so it's kind of a dedication that we're going to raise this kid's kid God's way uh, together. And if you are interested in that, I know we have some new babies. Um, And by the way, if you've never done it, the kid can be like 10 years old and you can still do it. But we're doing one Mother's Day. So if you're interested in that, use your Connect card and and, and do that. Um, But that's what we do instead of baptism. And again, the method is dunking. That's the way it's always been done. You know, if you don't have much water, can you do the sprinkling? Sure. Uh, But if you have water, it's always been done dunking. That's what the word actually means. But here's what's really cool. Here's what happens. Look at verse 13. So here's something else we see in baptism that, that lines up with our salvation. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircum of your flesh, God made alive together with him, listen to this, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We must be forgiven before we can be made new, before we can go from dead to light, to alive. We need to be forgiven. And here's how he did it, verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Picture that. What, what's a record of debt? Anybody here have a credit card? <laughs> and you log on and you see that record like, I spent how much at Del Taco? I mean, that's your record of debt on your credit card. Now, if you're like, you've got that one and then maybe you've got this other one. And then you've got your mortgage over here. That's another record of debt. Okay, I I owe the bank how much? You know, it's not even worth that anymore. Add all those things up, and here's your record of debt. Well, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and for the wages of sin is death. That's our record of debt. Every sin you've ever committed, somebody's writing down. Did you guys know that? Yeah, so somebody, like an angel or somebody somewhere, is writing down every wrong thing you've ever done. Some of us, I mean, that angel's getting writer's cramp, uh, or, or used to, but there's this record of debt. Now, if, if mine was here, and I thought about listing it, but I didn't have time, um, you know, it would just run across the room, this record of debt. But just imagine this record of debt, and you're reading it through, like, you did that, and that, you did that again? It, I mean, you go through this list, that all is what separates us from God. But Jesus took that, folded it up all nicely, put it in an envelope, and nailed it to the cross. That's what this is saying. That everything you've done and everything you will do was forgiven, but God, he doesn't just say forgiven, he has to pay the penalty for you. That that record of debt has to be paid. So Jesus paid it on the cross. That's the picture. That our record, it was put on that cross right there and nailed, a big fat nail, nailed it through. If you went to try and pull it off, you can't because it's nailed on there. We are forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Beautiful, awesome. We're celebrating this when we baptize. Like a wedding. 
like a wedding. It's a heart commitment to God. Now, a lot of times when I talk to people before getting baptized, I hear this frequently. I want a new start. You know, have you been baptized before? No. And I want to be serious about my faith now. That's exactly the right reason. To go, I, I've surrendered to him and I haven't been baptized and I just, I want to go all in. I want to be serious. I want to tell everybody I love Jesus. Boom. That's the reason to get baptized. It's exciting. Sometimes we hear the objection, I don't really like being in front of people. You know, or, or my faith is personal. I'm just going to keep it to myself. But here's the thing about our faith. It is personal, but it's not private. Your faith in God is very, very personal, but it's not private. We are commanded to declare our faith. In Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. There's that confess with your mouth part. Again, we are called. Here's this weird thing. I don't know why God did it this way. He wants us to be like this big family. He has created us to be a unique community where we need one another. I think, for example, this trip that we're going on to Burkina Faso, Africa. There's five of us going, but guess what? Is it a trip for just us five? It's, this mission is all of ours. And this has been my prayer leading it up, that our whole body would understand this mission is all of us. Many people in here sacrificed financially so that five could go. Many here are sacrificing prayers that these five would be successful. When we come back, whatever success there is, guess what? It's not just those five. It's all of us. As you read through the New Testament, so often we'll read, you know, I'm supposed to do this, you know, I'm supposed to do that. More often than the I, the singular, it says we. Yeah, even in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. There's just something corporate. And we see that in baptism. We are baptized into the body, into the fold to be part of the community of faith. It pictures the washing. 1 Peter 3.21 says, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Again, the water symbolizes the baptism that saves you. The baptism that would be of the Holy Spirit before the water baptism. Not, he makes this very clear. Thanks, Peter. Not the removal of dirt from the body that is not being dunked in the water, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. It is very, very clear we are not saved by it, but it's a symbol of the washing that took place. Water baptism does not save, but represents the commitment to Jesus. Now, flip pages, if you would. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Baptism is done once. The Lord's Supper is done over and over and over. Now, if you're in here, you've placed your faith in Jesus and you have not been baptized Put it on your card. Put it in there. During our prayer time at the end, go see somebody. But this Easter is going to be so much fun. This place is going to be packed. It's going to be a party. Get baptized this Easter. But now, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, or we call it communion, is where we take a, a cracker or a piece of bread, and we drink a, some grape juice, and we do that remembering what Jesus did on the cross. You can do it different ways. We'll see that. But here's, here's the very first Lord's Supper. It was the night before Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was taken before Pilate and the priest and before he was killed, and Jesus had a meal. It was a special little meal with just his 12 disciples. Halfway through the, the meal, one of them left, and so it was his 11 disciples. And it began by, by Jesus walking in. They all said they were going to come have this great meal, 
And Jesus put a towel around his waist and he washed their feet. He served them in the humblest way. You guys ever want to touch other people's feet? Gross. That's what Jesus did. And and they didn't have shoes like us. They had sandals and walked around in dirt. So Jesus washes their feet. You know, basically saying, I love you. And this, my new covenant is where we serve one another. It's not about us. It's served. Then they, they ate this meal. And Jesus knew, in fact, it was halfway through the meal that Judas left to go betray him. I mean, just imagine one of your best friends in the meal walks out. You know that you're going to die the next day because what they're going to do, that they're betraying. He leaves. And Jesus says, it's almost the end. And he does this. He institutes the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read this scene in Matthew 26. Don't turn there. It's on the screen. 26 through 28. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see what he says there? It is his blood of the covenant. So the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is a symbol of our new covenant with God. By the way, this covenant isn't one where he's like, I'm going to do part and you're going to do part. This covenant is where God says, I'm going to do all of it. And because of everything that Jesus does on the cross, you now have forgiveness and eternal life in him. That's this new covenant. The Lord's Supper is a symbol of the new covenant in Jesus where we, listen to this, where we remember his sacrifice, we look forward to his second coming, and we examine our current relationship with him. Leave that up for a little bit so people can mull on that. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. It says this, For I received from the Lord... Which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So here's the scene. Paul is writing to this church who's doing it wrong. They were, the way they would do this is they would get together and they would have a big meal. And during the meal, they would take the Lord's Supper. They would do communion during the meal. And the problem was the rich were coming and eating all this great food before the, and they'd come early and do that. So when the poor got there, all the good food was gone. And so there were these divisions within the church. There were these factions. Oh, we're over here and we're, we're going to do our own Lord's Supper thing. And, and these are over here. Kind of like now that might be within a church where there's factions, where this group doesn't like this group and they're gossiping about, the, you know what I mean? Just this infighting within the church. That's what was happening here. And Paul says, this is a big deal. You're taking the Lord's Supper, you're taking communion as if everything is fine and you're fighting with each other. You better cut it out. 
This is a big problem. The other problem was people living in open sin, open rebellion, and then taking the Lord's Supper as if it was no big deal. This would be like, like say, two people living together who aren't married yet, but they're coming to church, and then they're taking the Lord's Supper like everything's fine. You're living in open rebellion. Scripture is clear that sex is between a man and a woman within marriage. People openly living that way and then taking the Lord's Supper, Paul's saying, you better cut that out. Either stop taking the Lord's Supper or go get things right and then take the Lord's Supper. That's the scene. That's why Paul goes to talk about this. But what does he say? He says, do this in remembrance. So we do this every two weeks. The Bible says as often as you do it. It doesn't tell us how often. Some churches do it every week, and there's good reason to do that. Some churches do it like three or four times a year, and there's good reason to do that. Both, both reasons are to put value on it. Well, if we do it less often, there's more value. Or if we do it more often, there's more value. So we're not told how often to do it. We choose to do it every two weeks. But while we do it, we're remembering what he did on the cross. We're remembering it until he returns. We're not going to be doing communion in heaven, really. We're going to just have a big party with him in heaven because we're there. But we're remembering, looking forward to him coming back. You know, how should we take it? Should we have somebody up here that like blesses it and then puts it in your mouth? That's okay. I mean, that can happen. That's one way. When I was 16, I went on a missions trip to the South Pacific Islands, and I went to church in this rural village, and there was about 50 of us in this church service. And I was sitting in the back row. I was one of those. I was sitting in the back row, and we took communion. And they filled up this big old glass of wine, real wine. I was 16. And they just passed it. They would sip it, pass it down. Sip it, pass it down. I was in the back row. <laughs> So, it, it, I mean, you've heard that, right? Like the last drink is 90% backwash or whatever. I mean, it got to me and it's like, how much do I love Jesus? <laughs> but that's one way to do it. You know, the way we do it here is we, we walk up and we take it, you know, on our own. We're doing it together, but we take it up here. There's no right way. Uh, sometimes people will take a, a bread and this is the way they did it too, is they had a chunk of bread, peel it off. Again, I'm in the back. 50 hands have touched it, uh, you know, peeled it. I'm not sure how good soap was. Anyway, here it's a little bit more uh, sanitary, but we take it up here. But it, there's many ways to do it. There's a lot of freedom in how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But it's a symbol of the new covenant. Again, it's a symbol of this new life. Now, again, look at what we're supposed to do. So, so here's how. You can do it many different ways. Here's how we do it. The biggest how, listen, is the condition of your heart. That is the biggest how you take the Lord's Supper. How are you with God right now? Are you living in open rebellion? Are you fighting with somebody within the church? Are, 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 do you have a broken relationship? Not just this church, by the way, a fellow believer, any other church. Do you have a broken relationship that maybe you need to deal with before you take the Lord's Supper? He says in verse 28, let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink the cup. I like the psalmist's prayer where he says, Search me, O Lord, and try my heart. See if there be any anxious way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the prayer we pray before we take the Lord's Supper. Show me any sin that I need to deal with, and then I will deal with that sin and then take the Lord's Supper. The story is told of Alexander the Great, 
who was a, a great military leader, and they were out on campaign, and there was a man who, who had fled from battle, and he was brought before Alexander, and, and he was brought up there, and Alexander said, what's your name? He said, my name is Alexander. My, my mother named me after you. And he, and he asked the officers, what is he you know, convicted of? What, what is he accused of? And they said, he ran from battle. He fled. And the story is told that Alexander went up and he grabbed him and he pulled him close and he said, change your conduct or change your name. That's kind of the picture here. We, need to, we are representatives of Jesus. We're called Christians, Christians. This is our chance every two weeks to reevaluate how we are and make some changes. And if we're unwilling to make the changes, I would say abandon the name Christian. Because if you're unwilling to live his way, stop taking his name. That would be what, what the Bible says, taking the Lord's name in vain. I claim him and I live whatever I want. Change your way or change your name. So I'm not going to read through them all, but on your handout, on your notes, is seven reasons to take the Lord's Supper. Read over those and as we uh, transition to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to do that now. We've saved some time because I've already explained it. But as we move toward worship, I want to encourage you, examine yourself. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And again, as we do it here, is you come down the aisle, you, know, you take the bread and you take the cup. If you want to pray with those with you, pray with those with you. If you want to pray alone, pray alone. But take this time. If you're in here and you have never said yes to Jesus... Today is the day. We're going to have people available to pray in the back. Andrew and Jenny, right? Andrew and Jenny are going to be in the back to pray. Kids, if you're in here and you have never said yes to Jesus for the first time, one of your teachers, Amy, she's going to be right up here. If you want to come pray with Amy, she would love to pray with you. Maybe you've said yes to Jesus and you've never been baptized. Go see one of our prayer responders or go see Amy and say, I think I need to get baptized. And you can talk about that. If you need to confess something, go confess it to them and then come take the Lord's Supper. Uh, but let's let this time be a celebration of the new covenant, a celebration of our new life in him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the new covenant in your blood. Thank you that it's not based on what we do, but it's based on what you've done. And I thank you for baptism in the Lord's Supper. I thank you that you have given us things to do to remember. Reminders of who we are in you. Reminders of what you've done. The opportunity. I, I mean, life gets so busy. But yet when we take communion, we get to stop a little bit and see how are we with you. Because first priority in all of life is our relationship with you. Thank you for giving us this tool, this reminder to check ourselves with you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us in your way. Make any changes in us that need to be made so that we could glorify you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.